Turn with me, if you will, to John 16. Gospel of John, chapter 16. Sometimes we learn a lot in little things by observing little conversations, little exchanges between people. <clears throat> That's kind of what happens in our text this morning. Here in John 16, we're about to plunge into this major study of uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised to send, who he has sent now, what the Spirit does in relationship to the world, what he does in relationship to the church. But first, we have recounted this interesting little exchange between Jesus and his disciples in verses 5 to 7. As I studied at first, I just ignored it and rushed on to the meat of the text. But then it got harder and harder to ignore as I realized that it was not just an introductory statement that here these people were struggling with something that's just like what we struggle with and that Jesus' word to them applies to us. As well. So this morning I'd like for us to have just a little text, just a few verses, small passage, but one that's ripe with God's truth. Let me read it. John 16, verses 5, 6, and 7. <coughs> Jesus is speaking. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Just one truth I want us to learn from this passage this morning, and it's this. That in our darkest hour, God is still working his plan. In our darkest hour, God is still working his plan. You ever notice when we have these dark hours, when we have times of sorrow and depression, anguish, grief, you ever notice it just kind of makes the world stand still? Our, our, our world kind of stops. Everything gets preempted by the trouble, the grief. Duties get left undone, commitments go unmet, plans get abandoned. Life just stops. At least that's how it seems, that's how it feels. But this morning I declare to you that even in those times, those darkest times, God's plan is our own schedule. God is working out his will. Our text says that the apostles were filled with grief. One author explains, we're told in verse 6, sorrow had filled their hearts. The expression is very emphatic. Their hearts were so full of concern that they were ready to burst. I suspect most of us have not taken very seriously, have not really thought about what kind of anguish the disciples were in here. We've heard this story and we know how it's all going to turn out and so we kind of glide through it without really walking in their shoes. Think about the situation of the disciples for a moment. You know, these are not just casual friends of Jesus. Every one of them has left his business, abandoned his career, to go and be with Jesus wherever he goes, whatever he does. 
And it wasn't just their decision, for there are a lot of people that have come in and out and followed Jesus at this time or that, but Jesus had personally selected these twelve, called them his apostles, ambassadors, his official representatives. In fact, he'd already been training them. He'd given them power to do some miracles. He had sent them out on these practice mission trips. And they had seen God do supernatural, wonderful things. They were Jesus' apostles. Oh, but it wasn't just a job. They spent all their time together. They were disciples. They were co-workers. They were admirers of Jesus. But they were also friends. Jesus was their very best friend in the world. Oh, and they had dreams. At first they probably were quite confused, but slowly they began to be convinced that this Jesus was indeed the Messiah that God had been promising for hundreds of years. And as that truth gripped them, their, their, their excitement had begin, begun to grow. They began to envision the kind of kingdom that's coming. Finally, Israel is going to have a king like David in the glory days of the kingdom when it expanded and ruled the world. Finally, the oppression of centuries is going to be over. The oppression of the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Finally, that's going to be over because the Messiah has come. There will be blessing and prosperity. The kingdom will be a reality. They can't help but be excited. They ask dumb things sometimes. Can we sit on the right and left, Lord, when you're, when you're really raining? They're excited about what's happening. But something strange had been happening recently. Instead of the leaders of Israel coming to see what was now obvious to the disciples, it had gone the other way. The, the, the hostility was getting worse. In fact, there were rumors around that the leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. Jesus himself talked like that sometimes. Talked about being handed over to them. and Talked about dying. Indeed, this very night, Jesus had said he was going away and they couldn't follow. Oh, but that's not all. He just told them that because they belonged to him, they were going to be hated too. That they were going to be persecuted, that they were going to be excommunicated from their synagogues, that they might be killed along with them. Oh, you see, to say that these disciples were confused and afraid is a colossal understatement. They were being totally blown away at this point. They were about to lose their best friend, their hero, their religious hope, their faith in their government. Their, their, their love of their church, the security of their family, their good reputation, everything normal about their lives, their very life, they could lose it all in a day. This was indeed their darkest hour yet. Maybe you can identify with that. Oh, not the particulars of their situation. None of us have walked in their shoes, but with the emotion, the weight, the grief, confusion, Perhaps you too have known what it is to walk in utter darkness with your world crashing down around you. Leaves your head whirling, doesn't it? Oh, but if that wasn't enough, Jesus doesn't seem to be very sympathetic. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. 
Jesus says, now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess they would be, right? No, he chides them for their preoccupation with their trouble. He seems surprised at their grief. He acts like they don't trust him. Late Ray Stedman describes the situation this way. He says, Jesus is saying to them, why don't you ask me some questions? Aren't you interested in what's going to happen? What the result of my going away is to be? They can think of as what it might mean to them. Instead of curiosity and the consequent knowledge they could have, and even the excitement about what is going to happen, sorrow has filled their hearts. They're occupied with themselves. Another writer is even more pointed. He said, instead of focusing on the important matters, the disciples were indulging in a pity party. <laughs> Responded to Jesus' announcement by focusing on themselves, their sadness, how the next stage in God's plan benefited or didn't benefit them. Their problem was as simple as this. They were self-centered. They wanted joy. They wanted no part of suffering. I know that sounds hard, considering their deep sorrow, but you see, they were totally missing the point. In their darkest hour, all they could see was the darkness. But Jesus was promising that God was working his plan right on schedule, and they should have known that. And they should have trusted him for that. And they should have listened to that. I make that point because we should know it too. But I fear that we are so preoccupied with comfort, with our freedom from trouble, that the least little problem causes us to do the same thing they do. We're tempted to turn away from everything we know, to turn away from any concern about what God might be doing, and wallow in self-pity. But you see, when they did that, they were missing God's glorious plan that, God, that Jesus was trying to explain to them. Now, we're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks and look at it in some detail. But let me just talk briefly about it. His plan is what he says in verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. Jesus tells them that when he goes to the Father, he's going to send the Counselor, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, now, we often probably have thought how wonderful it would have been to be like the disciples back then. I mean, imagine if we could have sat on the shores of Galilee and listened to Jesus teach. Imagine how much easier it would be to believe if we could have been sitting up on the hillside and hear him preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Think how much better those disciples had it than we do. Well, but Jesus knows that there's more to it than that. 
For you see, when Jesus was not around, they were frantic. Where is he? Where is he? You remember the incident early in his ministry where Jesus had been teaching and healing, and then the next morning he got up real early and he went out to some solitary place to pray. They got up and they couldn't find him. They were frantic and they looked and they searched and they finally found him and they said, Jesus, where are you? Come on, people are waiting. And he says, no, we're not going back there. We're going to another town today. And those people were left waiting. Those people were disappointed. Jesus wasn't there. He was somewhere else. I suspect if he were still here in the flesh, that rather than being here to preach at the chapel this morning so we could bask in the wonderful sermon that Jesus taught, he probably would be on a speaking engagement out in Chicago somewhere. And we'd be saying, boy, why can't we ever get Jesus out here? Why can't we ever hear him? Everybody else gets to hear him. Why isn't he ever here? Nobody can be in two places at once, you know. And you know, the truth is, even those who heard him firsthand didn't always come away understanding everything. It's amazing how many times we read in the Gospels that they came away confused and shaking their head and arguing about what he meant. Uncertain. Not bold in their faith by any means. In fact, that's going to become clear this very night when they come and arrest Jesus. What's going to happen to the disciples who'd been with him, who'd been listening, who'd been learning personally from him for three years? What's going to happen? They're out of there. They're going to be gone. They've run for their lives. No boldness. How different from the picture on the day of Pentecost and the days after when that little band of disciples seemed to understand exactly what God was doing seemed to have wisdom straight from God himself and were bold and were fearless in the very counsel that put Jesus to death. They couldn't intimidate him. They said, we've got to obey God, not you folks. What happened? Why, you would think that the very spirit of Jesus had come inside and taken over every one of them. And yeah, exactly, that's what happened. That's Jesus' point. When I go to the Father... Then I will give you my spirit, and that's better. The spirit can be everywhere at once. The spirit will give wisdom that you can't learn in school. The spirit will make you bold and courageous and fearless. In fact, even when the persecution comes, the spirit will enable you to know how to answer that. The spirit will be changing you from the inside out. The Spirit will do all the things that I am doing, but working in all of you all at the same time all over the place. That's why Jesus says, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going. Unless I go, the counselor won't come. Jesus is not doing them harm. He's doing them good. He's not out to make their lives miserable he is providing everything they need to serve him. Oh, yes, they will suffer. He suffered. His followers will suffer. He warns them of that. But he says, when the Spirit comes, even when they haul you into court, don't worry about it. I'll give you wisdom. You see, even in their darkest hour, when they completely lost their perspective, God was still working his perfect plan. This morning I don't mean to make light of whatever trouble you might be going through. 
I know I haven't walked in your shoes just like we haven't walked in their shoes. But I must tell you, there is this great principle of God's word that we see in action here was true for these disciples and has been true for Christ's disciples through the centuries from them till now, and it is still true for you that in your darkest hour, God is still working. Don't you forget it. I think of that great verse in Jeremiah 29, it's verse 11, I think you probably have heard this promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Wow, what a great promise. Do you know where those words came from? Do you know when the Lord spoke those words? Sounds like the blessing at a wedding ceremony or something like that, doesn't it? I know the great plans I have. No, no, no. Those words were sent from the Lord during Israel's very darkest hour in history. Because of their terrible sin, God had sent the Babylonians to conquer them, to dismantle the kingdom. And conquer and dismantle they did. They were ruthless. They slaughtered thousands of the Jews. They took thousands more off as slaves, eunuchs in the Babylonian king's court. The cities of Israel were destroyed. The temple was dismantled. Jerusalem was burned to the ground. There was nothing left but rubble. And there in a distant pagan land, people who were once great in their own homes, in their own place, with the temple of God among them, sat in a pagan land as slaves. And said, where is God in all this? God himself is against us. It's our sin that's brought us to this place. There's no hope. What are we going to do? And God sent his prophet Jeremiah and said, say to them, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not harm, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, God's saying, in your darkest hour, you need to understand my plans are certain. This is the message of the cross. That was indeed the very darkest hour in the history of the world. That was the gravest miscarriage of justice. That was the most heinous wickedness ever done. That was the day of mankind's greatest ignorance, mankind's most colossal stupidity, mankind's most rebellious act. Never was there a day when God had so many reasons to destroy the world. In an instant, we crucified his holy son, treated him with contempt, spit in his face, hung him ruthlessly on a cross to die. How could there ever be recovery from this? How could anything good ever appear on the face of the earth? How could there be any future? How could there be anything but a scorched earth as God vented his anger against mankind? No, oh, but in that darkest hour, God 
was working his perfect, sovereign plan of the ages. And by that cruel, unwarranted death on the cross, Jesus made atonement for the very guilty sinners who hung him in there. By that act of injustice by man, God executed his justice, executed it against Jesus, who made, who paid with our sin that we might be forgiven. By his suffering there, we're healed. By his dying there, we are given eternal life. In the darkness, God worked grace. And so he calls us to live. In that same dying, suffering, troubled, grief-stricken world. And to find his strength. Not in our strength, but in our weakness. In our confusion. In our pain. In our grief. To find in his absence the power of his presence. The presence of his spirit, the counselor, the comforter our advocate. Oh, it makes no sense. It's paradoxical. I think of the Apostle Paul's experience. For some reason, God had allowed him to be plagued with some besetting weakness. Many people think it was bad eyesight, which would terribly hinder him as he tried to write and travel and speak. We don't know that. Something, he just calls it his thorn in the flesh. And so he prayed that God would take it away. I mean, certainly God would do this. This is his chiefest apostle. Think of how much more effective the apostle's ministry can be if he has his eyes back. Think of how many blind men Jesus had healed already. Think about how many miracles the apostle Paul had done. And so the apostle Paul prays, Lord, take it away. Relieve me of this. Deliver me from this. It's no big problem. And God says, no. No? I don't know if Paul thought maybe God didn't understand. I don't know. He prayed again. Lord, deliver me from this weakness. I can't serve you like this, Lord. God says, no. And a third time, Paul cried out to God, Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord! Please! You know what God did? He said, No. My grace is sufficient for you. What? What? Did God not know? Did God not care? Was God not paying attention? How could he allow his apostle, who was trying to serve him, to continue to struggle? How? Boy, Paul must have been mad. Paul must have been upset about that. Oh, no. Listen to him. Paul says, therefore, since God said no, since God promised my grace is sufficient, 
Therefore, I will boast about how weak I am. <laughs> so that Christ's power can be made known in me. Paul says, in fact, I boast about my persecution and about my weakness and about trouble and about all kinds of things that show my weakness because when I'm weak, then I learn what it is to be strong. You see, Paul had learned that in the darkest hour, God was still working. He could trust him. Didn't understand it. He could trust him. And folks, that's still true this morning. Today is a worldwide day of prayer for persecuted Christians, and that's good. We ought to pray. It is impossible that our brothers and sisters in Christ could suffer and it not affect us. When one part of the body hurts, it all hurts. But what would we pray for? Just pray that God would take away the comfort, or take away the, the pain and they could live in comfort? Just pray that the suffering cease? Oh, but you see, over the centuries, the blood of the martyrs has proven to be the seed of the church. That's how the church has advanced, by suffering with Christ. Through the faithful suffering of Jesus' disciples, God has powerfully brought the gospel to the ends of the earth and saved multitudes. Do we pray that that would end? Oh, we must pray all right, but we must pray that God would show himself mighty in that suffering, that Jesus would be glorified, that they would know the wisdom and the power and the courage that the Holy Spirit gave the early church when it suffered and counted itself privileged to suffer, that their suffering would make the Lordship of Jesus known in yet another place in the world. And as we pray for them, we need to pray for ourselves that God would deliver us from our commitment to our self-centered comfort, from self-pity in the least little struggle, and make us mighty in faith, like they are. Now that's not some kind of callous, insane, unfeeling response. That just recognizes the, the, the truth that it is in the darkest hours that God is often pleased to advance his plans. That it is in the dying that the resurrection comes forth. It was true of Jesus. It's true of his disciples. And it's true of us. One of my very favorite hymns in the whole world is a hymn by William Cowper. I happened to hear Chuck Swindoll telling his story the other day on the radio. I've heard it before, read it, but I love to hear it again. When Cowper was 32 years old, he lost his mind. He went through terrible dark days, finally becoming suicidal. He was so depressed, so discouraged so out of touch with God's goodness, grace. So he hired a carriage 
He lived in London, the 18th century. He hired a carriage to take him to the bridge where he planned to jump into the Thames. The carriage driver, who'd never met him before, saw what was happening and pulled him back and took him back home. His plan was thwarted. He arrived back home. He took an overdose of medication, but somebody found him and found the right antidote and gave it to him. His life was saved. So he decided to hang himself. He got a rope and he hung himself, but the rope broke. Finally, in desperation, he got a knife out and said, I'll fall on this knife and fell on the knife, but the blade broke off. The poor man couldn't even kill himself. But out of that agonizing life, which didn't all go away, by the way. It's not a wonderful story where you're saying, and he lived happily ever after. Oh, no. He struggled with mental illness all his life. He died insane. But out of that darkness came a profound sense of the mysterious providence of God. A few years later, he published a hymnal along with John Newton, a hymnal in which John Newton introduced a new song called Amazing Grace. William Cowper wrote 67 songs for that hymnal. I close with my favorite of his songs. He wrote some others. There's a fountain filled with blood. You know that song? This is my favorite. A song written about a year after that failed suicide attempt. Listen to what he says as he reflects on where is God in all that darkness. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm deep and unfair fathomable minds of never failing skill he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will you fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with Blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind that frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And so in your darkest hour, know that God is still working, Still working his perfect plan, you can trust him 
you can thank him. You can worship him. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these great promises. We bask in them in our comfort. Oh, God, by your Spirit, cause us to remember them in our pain. I pray in Jesus' name.